thank you for tuning in to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and this month we're celebrating Pride Month. We have the privilege of hosting an incredibly influential individual who has and continues to make significant contributions to LGBTQ plus advocacy and community empowerment. Joining us today is Mark Buchanan, a former Apple finance and sales executive and currently an executive coach and advisor at Buchanan Advisory. There, he is dedicated to helping diverse leaders reach their full potential. And personally, he's focused on making the world a better place for the LGBTQ community and has dedicated his life to promoting inclusivity, understanding, and acceptance. Last but not least, he's a Berkeley Haas undergrad alum. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me today. Mark, we like to start our podcast episodes with you know hearing your origin story. So let's start there. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up actually in Cupertino, part of Silicon Valley. I'm uh, the youngest of five boys in a large Irish Catholic family. My dad was an IBM salesman, and then he decided in mid to late career to become a financial planner. And then my mom, while she was raising five boys, she decided to go back to work to help make ends meet and became a contract negotiator for NASA and helped negotiate supercomputer contracts. So an amazing story dealing with adversity in a male-dominated tech field and really made some great inroads, which was an inspiration to me. Wow, that's amazing. Growing up in Cupertino, was that before Apple? Actually, it was right when Apple was founded in the mid-70s. And I remember as a kid being enamored by Apple, being in the community. And actually, when I was in high school, I thought you could get a job at Apple by putting a resume in an inbox down on Banley Drive in Cupertino. Never heard back from them back then. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. You were at Apple for, I think, over 22 years, right? Yeah, that's right. Did you get much interaction with Steve himself? No, I didn't. You know, I've been on an elevator with him, and I know there's a lot of stories about what Steve's like on an elevator, but uh, <laughs> he's very kind. And of course, I have profound respect for what Steve created. Yeah. My Apple fanboy would just stop at that because I, I could ask you a million questions about Apple. But <laughs> back to you, Mark. <laughs> What'd you uh, go to Haas for? When I was uh, in high school, I looked at a lot of different schools and I was accepted to University of Santa Clara and Berkeley undergrad. And I thought I was going to go to Santa Clara. And then I went to, I think it was Cal Day back in the day, but I went to the campus and just half an hour into it, I knew this was a school for me. Just amazing history, free speech movement, the most beautiful campus in the US, amazing culture. And it just made me go to Berkeley. And then I applied to Haas because I wanted to be a business person. I was in the mid-80s. Business was very popular in the mid-80s. I was fortunate enough to get into Berkeley Haas in my junior year. What did you uh, decide to study there? I studied finance and accounting. So I have a funny story. Our uh, commencement speech was done by Ivan Boski. Oh, really? That was your year? Yeah, that was my year. Wow. And I don't know if I'm proud of it or not, but (laughs) it's infamous. Of course, that's the speech that coined the phrase, greed is good, which made us all wince, of course, back then. But it was a piece of history in the 80s, and it was interesting. (laughs) That's so interesting to hear. I've 
you know, heard much about the speech. I study finance as well and and know Ivan Boski very well. I, I don't know him personally, but I actually worked for his nephew. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I've read Den of Thieves and, and all those books. It's crazy. So what, I guess what was being in the audience like listening to this, this guy who ended up in jail a few years later? Yeah, especially when you're at a Berkeley, it was the business school Berkeley commencement speech for the MBAs and undergrads. And I don't think anybody really expected it. People didn't know who he was really. And then, of course, when he got up there, I think people were just really shocked. I know my parents were like, wow, this guy doesn't sound like somebody who would be (laughs) at Berkeley, (laughs) Uh, of course. But it was interesting that it became part of the movie Wall Street. Yeah. It did represent the 80s pretty well. Yeah. That is interesting. So, all right. So coming out of Haas, where did you work? I worked for a consulting firm, a litigation consulting firm called Peterson and Company, but it's not around anymore, focused on forensic accounting. So I did that for three years. I see. And then that, that led you to Apple or? No, then I went to work for Gap. That's when I knew I had to work for a company where I believed in their product and what they did. Gap at the time was one of the fastest growing apparel retailers in the country. And it was an amazing place to work back in the 90s. I see. That's when I had the opportunity to first do an international assignment. I was able to uh, get an assignment in Gap, Japan, when Gap was just starting stores in Japan in the late 90s, which was an amazing experience professionally and personally. So I have to ask, you know, what what brought you ultimately to Apple? (laughs) It was 2000 or late 90s. I saw that Steve had come back to Apple and this amazing colored iMac came out. And I thought, wow, that seems pretty cool. Maybe there is something turning and changing at Apple. Then I saw the Think Different campaign and that was inspiring. I thought, wow, I think there's something new there. I did get a call from Apple and I was actually looking for a new type of experience and I wanted to do something new. And then I went to work at Apple. And a lot of friends and advisors said, what are you doing leaving Gap? It's such a great company. Why would you go to a company like Apple? Are they even going to be around? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, hey, I think there might be something here. Of course, I didn't know. I enjoyed every minute of it. Probably after the first six months when I thought, oh gosh, I don't know technology, even though I grew up in Silicon Valley, it was a whole new world for me. But then the culture clicked with me and I knew it was the right place to be. Yeah, and to think that, um, I just quickly Googled this, to think that Gap has a $2.8 billion market cap. Yeah. And Apple has a $2.7 trillion market cap. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Uh, That is quite amazing. Can you share with us a little bit of your time at Apple, you know, 22 years? What what was it like there? Yeah, as I kind of touched on the culture, I think One of the most amazing things about Apple, which I think is the best company on the planet, was the culture that Steve instilled in the company and the executive team. It was a culture of innovation. The customer and the product were utmost importance. Innovation was key. We were the underdog and we were, you know, trying to figure out how we're going to make sure that innovation leads to great products, which was an incredible journey. I worked in finance and and finance was one of the highest respected teams at Apple. Steve often would say, well, you know, if it weren't for finance, Apple wouldn't be around because the CFO, previous CFO, helped save the company when Apple was losing billions in the late 90s. Yeah. And so it was a really great experience. And finance was a partner to the business. And 
I just enjoyed that part. You know, it was an area I worked in the education market when I first joined, which you can't get any more excited about helping students learn and teachers teach with 21st century learning. And, you know, with the the wave of mobility devices, it was just a great place to be. I mean, before we started this interview, I, I told Mark that your work probably impacted my life <laughs> significantly growing up because I was a product of one of those initiatives that you worked on with educators. My father is an educator. He actually did his PhD in reading language arts and they they had a contract. Their university had a contract with Apple to get all these Apple devices and whatnots. And I just remember growing up using Apple's products. And it was only until I think 10 or 20 years later that I realized how privileged I was to have access to <laughs> such amazing products and a lot of software too. There was so much software oh, yeah. dedicated to education. Yes. All like the interactive reading books. Yes. Professional development. There was just so much that I didn't realize that I had access to that I think in many ways influenced and inspired me to do what I do today. No, that's amazing, Sean. And that's what Apple employees, that's why our eyes light up is those stories. You just hear them day in and day out. And uh, that's what gets you excited to come to work in the morning every day is yeah. to see that happen. So I'm incredibly grateful and appreciative of the journey at Apple because I felt like I could do my life's best work there. Well, thank you. Sometimes you wouldn't think people in finance can make that kind of impact, right? <laughs> <laughs> Mark, I, you know, my next question is, how did you end up starting Buchanan Advisor? What's your personal journey? Yeah. So, you know, I believe strongly, and I think it's a, it's a phrase Steve often quoted, was the journey is the reward. Hmm. You know, if you listen to his commencement speech at another university, which I won't name, (laughs) (laughs) he talked about a concept of connecting the dots. You can connect the dots looking backwards, but you can't connect them forwards. But it's interesting to go back and see how your journey is all about connecting dots and how grateful you are for those dots and how they connect. So if I think about my career that we just started to talk about, I went to Apple because I thought there was something interesting going on. I got excited about the culture. And then I had the opportunity to go to Japan and be with Apple Japan, which was an absolutely amazing experience. My husband is Japanese. We got a chance to be in his culture and I was there. And it was just a wonderful experience being able to have an impact on the Japan business. And part of it was really understanding and being immersed in the Japanese culture, which was a fantastic experience, an amazing team. And I loved every minute of it. And I learned so much from that experience. And then my journey took me back to the US. I eventually decided to take the leap from finance into sales because I just loved the business so much. And I thought, hey, I've had a successful career. Why not try being closer to the business? Because I love being close to the customer and go into a sales role. So I ran the commercial channel for Apple the last five years. And when I think back on those dots that I connected with, it was a journey about how to help develop people and help develop leaders and help people find a voice to be better leaders. And so that really inspired me after I left Apple to start another chapter of 
how can I give back and help others be successful? So that's what led me to starting Buchanan Advisory was, I think I can help other leaders be more successful and focus on diverse leaders, focus on LGBTQ plus community and really help them be successful and be a mentor, a confidant, an advisor and help people reach their full potential. And I'm enjoying every minute of it. Don't mind me asking, did you meet your husband in Japan while you're in Japan? Yes, so I did. Yes. 26 years ago, uh, when I was with Gap, I met my husband in Japan, which was an amazing experience. So I have a lot to be grateful for, for my Japanese experience. (laughs) That's really wonderful. What was the LGBTQ community like when you guys met? You know, it feels like to me that Japan's always been more open. And we know Japanese culture has a very conservative culture, but in this regard, like I always got the sense that they were very open. Is that true? No, that is not true. Uh, actually, Japan is, it's getting better. It's getting a little bit better now, but this 25 years ago, it's kind of a don't ask, don't tell type of a culture. Okay. And, you know, people aren't comfortable being out at work and school. There's a very small area within Tokyo where you can be your true authentic self. And it was a bar area back in the 90s. There's more efforts. I think gay marriage is now legal in Tokyo. I might be wrong on that. And gay marriage is not legal from a national standpoint. So there's still a ways to go, just like a lot of countries. I see. Yeah. I remember when Tim Cook stepped up as CEO of of Apple. It wasn't even that long ago, but it feels like at that time it was still people still made a big fuss about the fact that he was openly gay, right? What kind of impact did that have in the broader community? I, I know you were at Apple, so I don't know if you would know what kind of impact it had, but I felt like there was an impact, right? To have the CEO of this major company come out. Yeah. And I wonder what kind of impact that had in the LGBTQ community at that time. Yeah. I think there was a wave in the 2010, 2020 decade, a wave of more expression of people being out. And I think Tim's intention was all about the reason I want to come out is to help somebody be themselves. Right. And feel comfortable and safe. And the fact that he's, you know, a very influential leader could help somebody. And so I do think that was a very important moment, like many famous or influential people who've come out and declared who they are. So I do think that was an important statement he made. Yeah. I think that's amazing because, you know, Apple being one of the, being the most valuable company in the world. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's really great. How has the LGBTQ community evolved over years? Yeah. You know, for me, I came out later in life, relatively speaking, as you might find today in my early 30s. And so my 20s were in the closet, so I couldn't be my true authentic self. Um, And it impacted me personally and professionally. Just, you know, I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. But I think the amazing trailblazers that I stand on their shoulders for opening doors and making people feel comfortable and safe and secure being their true authentic selves really was a a huge wave that started with Stonewall. And, you know, one of the other watershed moments was when gay marriage was passed in 2015, 
which allowed myself and my husband to get married. My husband's Japanese citizen and allowed him to be married just like anyone else and be able to stay in the United States. And so I think that wave of acceptance in doing what's right for fighting for equality is an important moment and journey for the community. And there's still a long way to go, especially what you're seeing in the news and what's happening in the States today. And it's important that we all stay passionate about doing the right thing for equity, equality, inclusion, belonging. It's so important to the community. And that's what motivates me today to do what I can to advocate for the LGBTQ plus community and the intersectionality with many other communities, the BIPOC community. I think it's really important. You mentioned just now, you know, before you came out in your early 30s, you had said something along the lines of life was more challenging? Challenging, yeah. How so? Yeah, I think when you restrain yourself and mute yourself and turn down the volume on yourself, it is confining, constraining, and it doesn't make you feel good Hmm. about, as you see other people who are able to do that. So that's a challenge. And, you know, of course, in your personal life, of course, it was a journey for me. And I would never, I do not have any regrets on my journey. It is what it is. And I wouldn't be who I am today with the way my journey went. But I do know that the more I came out and was comfortable being myself in front of everybody, the more empowered I was and the more happy I was, which actually helped me in my professional career as well. And I think that's something that we have to have empathy for because there's many people still that aren't able to be their true authentic selves. I look out for people like that and try to help. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. You bet. And you're absolutely right. There's still a ways to go. I remember having a conversation with a family member not too long ago. You know, we have two young kids. And I just made a comment that I, for me, I didn't even think twice about. (laughs) It was just, I was like, you know, if my son turns out, we find out that he's gay, then, you know, it's not a big deal, right? It's just we'll love him and support him no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I forgot exactly what the family member said, but it was something along the lines of, well, you know, if you don't encourage it, right, then they wouldn't turn gay. You know, it's as if it was like, uh-huh. as if it was something like, uh, yeah, right. They didn't understand that if someone's gay, they're born gay, right? It's right. It's not a choice, not something you can change. Exactly. Yes. And it kind of shocked me for a moment, just even hearing that, because I guess for as long as my wife and I've been parents, we always just said to each other, we're like, you know, whatever and however our kids end up being, we'll love them for who they are. I think even that, being a child, both of us, being children of the you know 80s and the 90s, I should say, I want to say it is a learned experience and a learned skill to learn that acceptance. I think naturally we're born to be accepting. That's right. But I feel like the decade that we grew up in, you know, especially in the Midwest for, for myself, my wife, it was not very open and accepting in those ways. You know, there were a lot of crass jokes that were made growing up. And just to think back that, you know, we were even a part of that felt embarrassing, to be honest. And to just completely make this shift now to today where, you know, we are not only understanding, but we're completely accepting because of the impact of, I think, the culture at large. 
No, I, I agree with you. And I think it's something I realized I can't take for granted because I'm an optimist, a positive person. And the wave of marriage equality made me a little complacent. Mm. It made me think, oh, we've reached a point of acceptance. And you just know that I think it's something you can't give up on. You know that you can't get too comfortable with. And you have to keep fighting for what's right. And like I said, equality, equity, liberation for all, no exceptions, period. Yeah. And uh, I think that mindset, and thank you for being a good parent. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we all need to keep focused on that. You know, I'm a white gay male, so I have more privilege. And my story is still easier than somebody who is a member of the BIPOC community who is gay. So I, I'm learning that you have to have empathy because I actually had it easier than a lot of other people who are in, the, in similar positions, right? And I think that's another area that we need to continue to champion is rights for everybody and equity for everybody in the LGBTQ plus community. I guess on that specific note, you know, what are some challenges that LGBTQ plus individuals still face today? I know that's a very loaded question. Yeah, I mean, I think most of it you're hearing in the news a lot. You know, I think there's fear in the community with the, I don't know, four, five hundred, six hundred bills out there that are against the community or at least parts of the community and, and things like that. And and I think that makes people uncomfortable, especially younger people trying to come at terms with who they are. And I think that's something we need to keep focused on. So I think that's the probably the biggest challenge. And then the positive side is there's still a lot more very positive developments in acceptance and people, you know, as younger generations mature, I think there's a lot more acceptance and championing of rights for the community. And, you know, in what ways can allies support and advocate for uh, the LGBTQ plus community effectively? I love that question, Sean. I think allyship is so important. And I think learning and being a student of DEI and belonging is, is important for all allies. And I think participation, you know, with Pride Month coming up, it's an opportunity for allies to learn, celebrate, be part of it. And I think the more people are willing to be open-minded and learn about the community, the more a better ally they can be and be self-reflective. So I think that's it. I think it's that simple. It sounds simple, but it's, I know it's hard, but I think allyship is extremely important. And I think it's key to the evolution for the community we've seen so far. So Mark, you know, I want to take this time for you to kind of share a little bit about other things you're working on, what initiatives or organizations, you know, that you're a part of that are currently supporting the well-being of LGBTQ plus individuals. I just, in the last year, I became a board member for an organization called Open House. It's based in San Francisco. And Open House is an organization that provides low-income housing and community support for the LGBTQ plus senior community. I just celebrated our 25th anniversary. Wow. We had a incredible, we have a gala every year called Spring Fling, <laughs> and that was held a couple weeks ago. And we honored Nancy Pelosi, who was a major champion for our community. She attended, and uh, and that was really special. 
And the reason that this organization exists is that there's still a, a lot of adversity for the LGBTQ plus community who become seniors. Some of them feel like they have to go back in the closet because there aren't enough elder care services or communities that are accepting of LGBTQ plus seniors, believe it or not. Really? Wow. And it's a really powerful community in terms of support. And it makes me happy to see what we can do to support that community. And there's still so many members of the community that we haven't been able to address that we are focused on doing. And then I just recently became a mentor for an organization called Start Out, which is focused on providing mentorship to LGBTQ plus startup founders. I'm coaching uh, a startup called Social Walk. It's based in Chicago. Uh, it's former MBA students from University of Chicago. They're a great group, and, and I'm excited about that. It's a great network to really help startups be successful. So I'm enjoying that too. Since we're on that topic, what are some good resources for LGBTQ plus leaders and entrepreneurs? Yeah, I, I start out as a, a great organization. There's an organization based in New York called Gangels, G-A-I-N-G-E-L-S, which is a venture capital fund, which is seeding um, LGBTQ plus led startups, which is an organization I'm also part of. I think if I were a founder, I would seek out those resources and organizations. And I'm probably, there's probably many others that I, <laughs> I don't know of. I think, you know, getting that mentorship from people in the community can really help startups thrive. Mark, any other things that you want to touch upon that I didn't bring up? Just some words of wisdom, hopefully for the Haas community is, I love the principles that Haas has. I think if you live by those principles, I think that's a really great foundation to be successful. It's sort of what motivates me to do what I do. Yeah. You know, if I think about them, you know, I'm trying to remember them all. I question the status quo, confidence without attitude, be a student always and being beyond yourself. Yeah. I think those are incredible. I just love going to the school and seeing the banners with those statements and those principles. And I think the more the Haas community can live by those principles, the more successful you're going to be. And I would just like to throw out there that if anybody who's a student at Haas and needs some mentorship, I'm open. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, or you can also fill out the contact page on BuchananAdvisory.com. It's amazing. So to wrap up the interviews, we love to ask some fun questions. You know, what do you like to do for fun, Mark? Oh, well, it's interesting. I just was singing karaoke last night at home. We have a home karaoke system. I think my years in Japan <laughs> helped uh, helped me. Now, just because I sing karaoke doesn't mean I'm a good singer. <laughs> I won't subject you all on this podcast to that singing, but it's a lot of fun. I specialize in Frank Sinatra for some reason. I don't know why. Okay. And uh, I love doing that. I love big band. <laughs> <laughs> I love traveling. I love theater, music, hiking and walking. And I'm also starting out bird watching. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> okay. So it's funny. My, I heard from my brother that bird watching is actually very exhilarating. It's, uh, yeah, he does it. So, <laughs> yeah, it's very cathartic and therapeutic. Yeah. I'm also a huge Sinatra fan. Oh, great. <laughs> I don't know how I got into it. I just remember throughout college, that's all I listened to was Sinatra and Bennett and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So we'll have to do karaoke sometime. <laughs> yeah, I would love it. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure having you today. Absolutely. It's a privilege being here. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley House podcasts. And until next time, go Bears.